0: You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Well, it's good to be here. It's good to be here. Such a critical day for, for you as a community, for Pastor Bill. It's good to be here with Bishop Q and with Mark and Danielle. So many friends, and as I said, it's, it's a, it's, it's, it's an overwhelming kind of experience to see all the ways in which God weaves our lives together, yeah. and this, a day like this, a day where so many of us who've known each other in various ways for a long time are gathered together around a moment, uh, a kind of Jordan crossing, Red Sea crossing moment for, not only for, for Pastor Bill, but for you as a community. It's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful to see. It's beautiful to see the, the weaving of God. So thank you for the opportunity to be here. Thank you, Pastor Bill, for the invitation. I heard a preacher once say that the, the aim of preaching is to get Jesus into trouble and then to get him out just at the last minute. I've tried to do that, but I always just ended up getting myself in trouble. <laughs> and this morning, that's particularly going to be true, I think. Uh, when when, when pa- Father Bill, Father to be Father Bill, I speak those things that are not yet as though they were. <laughs> when, when Pastor Bill called and asked if I could come, I had to work a couple of things out to make it happen, but I said, sure, I'd love to, please, please let me work it out. And then realized that it's Christ the King Sunday on the calendar and, and the day of his priesting. So immediately I was drawn to Revelation, to the apocalypse, because those themes of kingship and priesthood are one in Revelation where we encounter Christ who is the warrior priest king like David. And then I realized, I, I think I'm going to try to talk about Revelation. Now that's, that's, like I said, going to get me into all kinds of trouble for, for all kinds of reasons. One is, Revelation is a terrifying text. I, I grew up, I, a Bishop and I were laughing last night about, I grew up in a church where I wasn't sure, and I'm not sure any of us really believed in God, but we all believed in hell. And we all believed in the rapture. And so we lived in constant fear, especially when this text was brought up, right? So when you preach from Revelation, it's, it's a terrifying experience. And when it wasn't a terrifying experience, it was just an overwhelming one. I don't know if you've ever been in a service where someone has had a chart that charts out all of the end times. I mean, it's better than being terrified, but it's bewildering to try to think, you know, you know, where are we and when is this going to happen? It's, it's a bit bewildering. The only thing that was redemptive is when I was 14 and 15, I love those charts because of the Whore of Babylon illustration. <laughs> I said I was going to get myself in trouble. But I mean, all we had, I mean, we had no television. We weren't allowed to read comic books or anything. So we were very, very sheltered. But we had Song of Songs. And the charts for Revelation, I mean, that's what we had. (laughs) I'm not going to talk about the whore of Babylon this morning any more than, than this. But the other thing that gets you into trouble with Revelation is even though it's a text that everyone knows, no one knows what it says, like you read it, you have no idea what's being said, people get connected to their interpretations of it. People are defensive about their readings of Revelation. Now, you would think, given that none of us really know what in the world is happening, we would just kind of hold our interpretations open-handedly. But something about, something about it, the less you understand, the more tightly you hold to what you think is your understanding. So I'm just going to tell you right up front, my reading of Revelation is not going to be yours. I'm not trying to take yours away from you. All I'm asking you to do is let me have mine, too, for the next few minutes, and, and then you can go right back. To, to saying what you think. I I was speaking at a church once, talking about the narrow way and bearing your cross, talking about the challenge of following Jesus. I promise this happened just like this. I get done, sit down, the pastor comes up. He's like, oh, that was incredible. And he just went on and on and on about how amazing this sermon was. And then he said, without breaking stride, but it's not nearly as hard to follow Jesus as he made it sound. So who would like to get saved this morning? So there might be a little bit of that that happens this morning, right? Like where you're like, I'll, I'll preach the sermon and then you'll walk out and say, yeah, 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 but you know, the rapture and, and Daniel and the whore of Babylon, right? <laughs> you, you can have all that if, if you want it. But I actually think Revelation is not at all really about the things we've been told it's about. The first movie, uh, we we didn't have television. We weren't allowed to go to the movies or anything. So the first movie I saw was Thief in the Night. I I still see a therapist, and all we talk about (laughs) is Revelation and the Thief in the Night. If you haven't seen it, you need to see it. Oh, yeah, fair enough. No, you don't. Right, exactly. No, you don't. Yeah, don't. Yeah, whatever you do, it, protect your children from it at all costs. <laughs> but I, I think we've we've got this sense that Revelation is about the end of time, in which God turns out to be just as angry as we always feared He was. Right, just just as furious, just as wrathful, to use good religious language, as we always fear He was. But I, I don't I don't think that's at all what Revelation is about. I mean, Revelation is filled with violent imagery. I mean, the one that captured me as a kid is the battle of Armageddon, in which the blood runs as deep as the horse's bridle. That's violent. I mean, Quentin Tarantino has nothing on whoever wrote the apocalypse, right? Blood as deep as the horse's bridle. Jesus appears in one of the texts we'll read today, and his clothes are spattered with with blood. It's a violent, violent text. That, in fact, is all about the end of violence. And it's not about the end of time, but about how you and I are going to live in this moment, given who it is that claims us. So what I want to try to do in the next few moments is work through the book of Revelation quickly. There are four visions. in in The one apocalypse is made of four visions. The first vision happens on the Isle of Patmos. Then he is taken up into heaven, and he has a second vision in heaven, a vision of the throne, four and five and following. Then he has a vision where he's taken to the wilderness and shown the woman who was pregnant with the child who will rule the nations. And then at the end of the book, we get a, we get a, a vision of the mountain. So you get the, a, a kind of vertical move from Patmos to heaven, And then you get a horizontal move from the wilderness to the mountain, which is the same move that Israel is made to make. And the climax of the book, of course, is that there is a meeting of heaven and earth. The New Jerusalem comes down so that you, the the entire book is, is, is laid out like a cross where you have a vertical movement intersected with a horizontal movement in which the divine and the human are at one and you have a marriage of heaven and earth. And again, that's not about the future so much as it is about what that means for you and me right now. How are we going to live as people who know that this is the story of history? The story of history is the story of the cross, the crossing of time and eternity, heaven and earth, God and human beings. How are we going to live knowing that that's true? So what I want to do is look briefly at one scene from each of the visions, and when we're done, I think you'll have at least a, a, a taste of what it is that this writer actually believes the Christian life is about, what it means for us to be a kingdom of priests. And from that, immediately to recognize what this day means. We're celebrating Christ the King. This is, this is a relatively new feast day in the church's calendar. It, it was founded in the 1920s. In the aftermath of World War I and when Europe was coming apart, melting down, and the Pope recognizes this this kind of cataclysmic moment and insists, as he should have, we should turn our attention to Christ the King. When all the nations are at war, when the peoples are imagining their vanities, our attention should turn to Christ. And so even though it began as a Roman Catholic holiday. It very quickly was taken up by churches all over the world. And, and today, churches Lutheran, Anglican, Catholic, Pentecostal, all of us will be celebrating this day as a reminder to ourselves that Christ is king. Whatever history may, however it may seem to be shaking out, and whoever is president or vice president and whoever you're hoping to vote for or hoping doesn't get elected, what matters is that Christ is king. And it's it's crucial that this feast day is the last day of the year, on the last Sunday of the year in the Christian calendar. We're we're about to open into Advent, and the story is about to begin again, the story of hope, the story of anticipation, the story of the coming of this king. But the last Sunday of the year, we turn our attention to, to this truth that Christ is king. But here's what I'm convinced of. It's so easy for us to forget who is king, what kind of king he is, and what he expects from us as his subjects. That we're so inundated with impressions about what it means to be the people of God that we often forget who, who this God really is, what he's really like, and what he expects and wants from us. So, enough preface. Revelation chapter 1. This is a scene from the first vision when John is on Patmos. I, I don't know that we think often enough about the fact that most of our New Testament—not all, but most of our New Testament—was born from exile from people who were exiled or imprisoned. That these texts we receive as scripture, and you and I are—we're re- reading them as free people, more or less, but we should never get too far from the truth that these texts were written by men, in, in this case men, who, who were not free, whose commitment to Jesus led them into exile, led them into prison. And John is in exile on Patmos and he has a vision. Verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Traditionally, the understanding is that this John is the John who wrote the gospel of John. And I want you to think about how striking, if that's true, how strikingly different his introductions are. In the gospel, he introduces Jesus by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and nothing that was made was made apart from him, and in him was life, and you remember the text. But here, he doesn't begin with who the Word is in relation to God eternally, but who the Word is in relation to you and me historically. He says, this Jesus is the one who is the faithful witness, he is the one who is the firstborn of the dead, and he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, you will, you will understand nothing that I'm saying today or nothing that John says in his revelation if you don't understand that he's the ruler of the kings of the earth only because he's the firstborn of the dead. And he's the firstborn of the dead only because he's the faithful witness. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. This is one of his titles. He, he is, as we will read later in the revelation, the king of kings and the lord of lords. We sang this morning about our God is greater. Our God is stronger than any other. I mean, that, that's, that's how the apocalypse begins with this claim that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. But you only understand what that means if you understand he's the firstborn of the dead, meaning he was dead because he was a faithful witness. So Revelation is telling you right up front that the rule of God is tied to the lives of people who die in witness to God. That the martyrs reveal the authority of God. That those who do not, as we'll read later in the Revelation, who do not love their lives to the death, right? There's that that passage, I, I grew up in a Pentecostal church, we quoted this all the time, that they overcame by the blood of the Lamb by the word of their testimony, and because they did not love their lives unto the death. Now, when, what we did is we just thought that was biblical precedent for the testimony service, which was probably the worst idea we've had in church liturgical history. The, the testimony service—it's incredibly dangerous moment. You know that time every week where you just open up the floor and say, "Anybody have anything they want to say?" Oh, listen, people. That's, that's a really, really bad idea. But we love quoting this verse. But think about what it says. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and because they did not love their lives to the death. Now, again, we can, we can have a kind of spirituality, a, a way of living the Christian life that kind of reappropriates terms and makes them mean something other than what the text means when it speaks of them. So when we were talking about the blood of the Lamb or the word of our testimony, we had lost all contact with the fact that what the text means is that they overcame by the defeat of Jesus. How did Jesus defeat his enemies? By allowing them to defeat him. He could call legions of angels. But he doesn't call legions of angels. And when his disciple pulls a sword, he tells him to put the sword away and heals the one that he struck with the sword. Jesus overcomes by his own blood, not the blood of his enemies. And the word of our testimony is not the word of God has been faithful to me in my life. I received this job or I was healed. The word of our testimony is the word of a life lived toward that same kind of death. In in Revelation, testimony is not praising God for the good that happens in your life. Testimony is remaining devoted to a God who will not intervene. You're not hearing me. We've made testimony into the celebration of what we wanted to happen. We testify, this has gone well in my life. Praise God. In Revelation, nothing goes well in the lives of the faithful. And that is their testimony because even though they have nothing going their way, they remain devoted to this Jesus who also had nothing going his way. That's testimony. They do not love their lives to the death. They don't cling to life. This is the mark of Jesus' divinity, that he's one with God, but he doesn't grasp it. He doesn't cling to it, but he yields it and becomes one with us. The mark of a Christ-like life is that we do not cling to our own lives. This, this is what it means to be his witnesses, to be faithful witnesses. And so this is how John introduces him. He's the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom and priests serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Made us to be a kingdom of priests. Now, I know some of us have been raised to be allergic to anything that sounds Catholic. I've heard a great story once about a man named Claude. Claude was born in South Georgia, never left this county. In his 70s, he goes on a missions trip to South America. And they're in a cathedral in Peru, a Roman Catholic cathedral, where there is this gigantic statue of Mary above the altar. And are standing there, and Claude is just mouth agape, looking up at this gigantic statue of Mary with her crown, the Queen of Heaven. And the man, the pastor who's leading the mission trip, comes over to him and says, Claude, what are you thinking? What do you think about all this? And Claude says, feels a little Catholic to me. <laughs> yes, fair, fair point. Yes, it's a little Catholic. But but here, here Revelation is is very clear. That's who we are. We are priests because he's made us to be priests. He's made us to be a kingdom of priests, to serve his God, to serve his Father. Unto him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and is to come the Almighty. I, John, your brother, who share with you in Jesus the persecution. Now that's not often the way in which we identify with one another. We didn't sing this morning a song. If we did, I missed it. We didn't sing this morning about persecution. But John wants to identify with his people by saying, I share with you in Jesus the persecution and the kingdom. Because in Revelation, there is no kingdom that doesn't come by way of shared suffering. I share with you the persecution and the kingdom and the patient endurance who was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a, a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write in the book what you see and send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamon, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And on turning I saw... Seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe. Just wait. If you you haven't seen this, come tonight. You'll see some long robes. (laughs) I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest. Literally, it's across his breasts. I'll come back to that a golden sash across his breast. His head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining with full force. Christ, the warrior, priest, king. But notice, the voice comes from behind him. You will understand nothing about how revelation works if you don't understand that the revelation always comes from behind you, meaning you're never seeing what you should be seeing. Whatever you're looking at today, the revelation God has for you is behind you. And you will not see it until you turn away from what you are seeing now there's always a turning. Without the turning, you never see. This is the writer of the gospel. At the end of the gospel of John, we have a scene in which Mary Magdalene is at the tomb. She's looking into the tomb. She hears a voice behind her, and she turns, and it's Jesus. But she still doesn't see him. I mean, John is so careful to emphasize this point of turning. She's looking into the tomb she sees the angels. She hears a voice behind her. She turns. She's face to face with whom she thinks is the gardener. Because sometimes even when you turn, you still don't see what you should see. Wow. I mean, this is, the, this is the whole of the Christian life. I, I was raised amongst Pentecostals who believed in something called second definite work sanctification which was the idea that in one moment you could go from being a sinner to a saint. You could go from having sin at work in you to being utterly free of it. One of the men in our church was named Brother Wright. No one is better named than Brother Wright. Brother Wright believed that he had been so sanctified that he not only couldn't sin, he couldn't be tempted. He tempted me just by saying that. And, and I could sin. And, but, but here's the thing. That's nonsense. That's nonsense. None of us goes in a moment from sinner to saint. Conversion isn't a one-time experience in which you you come forward blind and go away seeing. You're always blind, seeing, blind, seeing, blind, seeing. As soon as you think, you're, you're like the man, I'm like the man who's been touched once by Jesus. And I can say, I see people, but they look like trees walking. He has to touch us again. And again, and again, and in, in, in the Gospel of John, Mary is looking into the tomb. She hears the voice. She turns. She sees whom she thinks is the gardener. He calls her name, Mary. And the text says, and turning to him. Because even when you're facing Jesus, you still have to turn again. And so John is on the Isle of Patmos, and he has to turn to see. And what he turns to see is this revelation Of the warrior priest king with a sword in his mouth and fire in his eyes. And he still doesn't know what he's seeing. That's that's the problem not only with our reading of Revelation, but our reading of God's work in the world. Our reading of what's happening in history is that we turn once and now we trust what we're seeing. But in Revelation, never trust what you're seeing. Because you're going to have to turn again. You're going to have to turn again. So we see this, this revelation of the sword bearing, fiery eyed king. And John says, I fell at his feet as dead. And the first thing this warrior priest king does is say to John, Do not be afraid. This glorious one, this one whose face is shining like a thousand suns, he doesn't want you at his feet as dead. His glory is not meant to bow you or overwhelm you or crush you. It's meant to dissipate your fear. See, we we think that the glory of God is meant to make us afraid. No, the glory of God is meant to destroy our fear of everything else. If this is who my God is, how could I fear anything? And yet we're afraid of Him. He puts his hand on John. No, no, no. Don't be afraid. You've seen my glory, but you're misunderstanding my glory. That's, that's where we begin. That's how we begin with the revelation. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead. And see, I am alive forever and ever. And I have the keys of death and Hades. And see, I have the keys. This is the one who has conquered, but the question to ask about Christ and his conquering is who is he conquered and how? And the answer is death and by his own death. Who does he have victory over? Death. How does he win the victory by his own death. In the language of, of the liturgy, he tramples down death by death. He defeats our enemy by his own defeat. You've got to keep turning or you won't see him. And so, second vision, Revelation 5. I need to go a little more quickly or we're just going to have to, we're, we're going to, have to transition directly into the priesting. <laughs> Revelation 5, second vision, now he's in heaven. So on earth, hear this, on earth he sees Jesus as the warrior priest king with a sword in his mouth and fire in his eyes, but saying, don't be afraid. Now he's in heaven, and he sees that same one differently. Revelation 5, then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne, the Father, a scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. This is, is, I think, the surest mark of the true prophet. They weep for what has not happened. What has not happened is the will of God has not broken into the world. The scroll of God's will is sealed up, and no one can open it. And we want what God wants for the world. You see, we've read this book. Think about how Sick it is that we've read this book that is all about the hope of God's will being done in the world, and we're afraid of God's will being done in the world. We've taught this story in such a way that people are afraid for God to come, afraid for God's judgments to be declared, afraid for God's victory to rise, and yet John is weeping rightly, weeping bitterly because God's will is not being is, is not achieved, it's not, it's not worked out in the world. But you know what happens next. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See. Clear your eyes of the tears and see the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. What has he conquered? Death. So that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb. Do you see what just happened? He's weeping. Don't weep. There is one who is worthy. And where does that voice come from? Behind him. And when he turns, what does he see? Not the lion, but the lamb. Because Revelation is insisting that what you think you understand isn't what is being revealed. Oh, the lion can open the, open the seals. I know what that means. No, you don't understand what that means. Look, the lion is the lamb who has been slaughtered. I, I thought you said he was the lion who conquered. He is the lion who conquered. As the lamb who was, who was slaughtered, who was conquered. Because again, the vision of Revelation is that the way in which Jesus defeats his enemies is by letting his enemies defeat him. And what marks his people is the willingness to be defeated with Jesus for the sake of their enemies. That is faithful witness. That is faithful witness. The lion is the lamb. The roar is the bleat. The victory is the cross. I see the lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they began to sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seal. For you were slaughtered. What makes us worthy? Being slaughtered. This happens in Romans 8. There's a psalm that's a protest. Most of the psalms, by the way, we have 150 of them. Most of them are psalms of lament or protest. There's psalms saying to God, you're not faithful to us. We trust you. We are trying to be faithful to you, but you're not faithful to us. And one of those psalms is, you have led us like sheep to the slaughter. Paul in Romans 8, when he's reflecting on the ways in which all things work together, or God works all things together for the good, he says, you have led us like sheep to the slaughter. And Paul turns what was a protest into a praise. Because for people who are marked by the story of Jesus... What we want most is to share with Jesus. What does Paul say he wants above everything else? What, he left everything behind so that he might share in Christ's sufferings and in that way know the power of his resurrection. This, this is what marks the Christian life is that we are drawn to the cross. Drawn to bear the cross. Drawn to suffer with Jesus for the sake of those who are causing the suffering. And so... You are worthy to open the seals because you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransom for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. And let me just say right now, given the ways in which since the last election cycle, so much of the conversation in our country has shifted again to conversations about black and white, and we've seen a rise of things like nationalism and white supremacy, nothing could be further from the spirit of Christ than nationalism and white supremacy, nothing could be more demonic or hellish than the idea that we should be with our own. Because what marks God's people is that all are our own. (laughs) He gathers saints from every tribe, every language, every people and nation. And we are only pretending to be the church if that's not what our life together looks like. Uh, Like I said, and then notice, you have made them to be a kingdom. This is the second time we've been told he has made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God and they will reign on the earth. Now I've got to stop to say the two things that, that, that mark the kingship of Jesus. The first is that he rules by being ruled and serving others. I mean, he tells his disciples this in no uncertain terms. Amongst the Gentiles, the great ones lord it over the others, but it must not be so among you. Among you, if you wish to be great, make yourself the least, because I am among you as one who serves. Now, we still don't believe that. We still talk about serving God. And not without reason. I mean, Scripture talks about serving God. But you'll never really understand what serving God means until you understand that before you serve God, He is serving you. That far more than you want to do something for God, God is doing something for you. And this is, this is a footnote to everything else I'm saying. If you miss this, you will at some point lose faith. At some point, your efforts to do stuff for God will wear you down. This, this happens in the Gospels. Am I still okay? Keep going. Two, 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 two stories in the Gospels quickly. I don't want this to be a long footnote. But we have the story of John the Baptist and Peter that come at the beginning of the end of Jesus' ministry. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he comes to the river Jordan and says to John, baptize me, and what does John say? I'm not worthy to baptize you. You should baptize me. The end of Jesus' life in the upper room As he's preparing to be killed, betrayed and killed, he's going to wash their feet, and he comes to Peter. And what does Peter say? I'm not worthy for you to wash my feet. I should wash your feet. right? So Jesus' ministry begins with a man refusing to baptize him, and a man at the end of Jesus' ministry refuses to be baptized. What happens next to both of those men in the story? The next time we see John the Baptist... He's saying to his disciples, go and ask him, are you the one or should we look for another? And Peter is denying Jesus. I never knew him. Because if you think this relationship with God is about you serving him, you have misunderstood the relationship entirely. He is the one who wants to be baptized by you and wants to wash your feet. There is nothing you can offer to him that isn't already a gift to you from him. this, it's so radical. God would rather not be God at all than be God without us. God is more concerned about serving you than you serving him. And you understand nothing about this king if you think he wants subjects because this is a king who makes everyone else king. Now, when we say king of kings and lord of lords, we, because we're so filled with violence and domination, we assume that means he's king over other kings. He dominates them. He's king of kings in the sense that he refuses to have any subjects who aren't themselves kings as he is. He's the king in a kingdom where everyone is king. If you doubt me, read Revelation, because what what happens is a progression. In the beginning, we see the one who is on the throne, and before the throne, the seven spirits and the lamb. Then we see the lamb is in the midst of the throne, and now the God who was and is and is to come has opened the throne to envelop the Lamb. The Lamb is in the midst of the throne of the Father. And then the Lamb in the midst of the throne of the Father says, and I will grant to you, to the churches, the seven churches, those who overcome, I will grant to you to sit with me on my throne. And here in this revelation in heaven, what is said is he's made them to be a kingdom of priests and they will reign with him. Because God is so, I mean, his very life is grace. He cannot have any authority that isn't the authority he gives away. He doesn't have any dominion that isn't dominion he gives away. He doesn't have any power that isn't power he gives away. we've, We've imagined God as the most powerful being, but God is not the most powerful being. He's not like other kings just to an infinite degree. He's utterly unlike a king. If you want to know what he's like, you have to look to the least of these. That's why when Jesus, Philippians 2, when Jesus comes among us, he cannot come as a king. He can only come as a slave. Because amongst human beings, the only human beings who are living a life that's anything like God's life are the people who are living a life of service to other people. The only life that reveals God's life is a life that is radically devoted to caring for other people. That's who God is. That's who God is, and that's who the Lamb reveals him to be. He's made them to be kings and priests, and they will reign on earth. Third vision, Revelation 19. verse 11, Revelation 19, 11. Then I saw heaven opened, another, another vision. Then I saw heaven opened and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name inscribed that no one knows but himself. This is is really important that one of the names of Jesus is a name no one knows but himself. It's a way of John acknowledging that this is God. He's the one who gives us a name that we didn't know. But he has a name even we will never know. He's God. He's faithful and true. He has a name that no one knows but he himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the enemies of heaven, and the armies of heaven—sorry, wearing fine linen, white and pure—were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. So, what's the very first image we get of Jesus? He is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the rulers of the, the ruler of the kings of the earth. And now in 19, we're about to see his victory. Now he's coming. Remember, in the, in the second vision, John goes up to heaven. A door is opened in heaven, and John is taken up. But now a door is opened in heaven, and God's coming to us. And this one that John saw on Patmos, the one who was behind him, is now coming on a white horse. The word is coming with his sword to lay low the nations and his rod to rule them. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, this is the vision that frightens us. I've heard preachers say, Countless times that the first time he came as a lamb, but the next time he's coming as a lion. The first time he came in meekness and humility, but the last time he's coming in authority and dominion. The first time he came forgiving our sins, and the last he comes to destroy the sinners. But that's blasphemy. That's blasphemy. Jesus didn't conceal the character of God. He revealed the character of God. In his first coming, he didn't hide God's true nature. He disclosed God's true nature. The Jesus who's coming is the one who went. No other Jesus is coming. So what do we take of this? What do we make of this? That here comes the one who is going to tread out the fury of the wrath of God, who's going to lay low the nations and rule them with a rod of iron. He's going to make war. Then the battle Interestingly, isn't pictured or described. Verse 17 Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly in mid heaven Come, gather for the great supper of God. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of the mighty, the flesh of horses and riders, flesh of all, free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast. And the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against the rider on the horse and against his army. And there's no picture of the battle. It just simply says, and the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who had performed in its presence the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were killed by the sword of the rider on the horse, the sword that came from his mouth. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Hard to imagine anything more violent until you remember who we're talking about. The sword, John tells us every time, The sword is the sword that is in his mouth. It's not the sword in his hand. God has no sword in his hand. God's sword, his weapon, is his word. And his word is do not be afraid. What kills you is a God who doesn't need you and loves you anyway. Because there is not a human relationship you will know that is like that. Every child learns its parents, every child learns its siblings, every friend learns its friends, and later its enemies, as people who are needy, as people who need something from you or want something from you. But God wants nothing from you and he needs nothing from you. He doesn't need your devotion or your obedience or your love. The love with which you love him is nothing but his own love shared with you. Your obedience is nothing but his obedience shared with you. Your faith is nothing but his faithfulness shared with you. He has no need of you, and the one who has no need of you and can in no way benefit from you says to you, I love you. You're mine. I'd rather not exist at all than exist without you. I'll give up my own life for you, Do not be afraid. The word, the sword that is in his mouth is the word of forgiveness, the word of acceptance, the word of adoption, the word of blessing. It's the word of love. The blood that's on his garment is not his enemy's blood, it's his own blood. When he comes spattered in blood, it's the blood that he shed. Revelation has told us how did he conquer? By his blood. Every other conqueror, name them, ancient, medieval, modern, any conqueror conquers in the blood of his enemies, but not this conqueror. The conqueror of all conquerors conquers in his own blood. He defeats his enemies by letting his enemies defeat him in such a way that they are no longer his enemies. When Jesus is on the cross, what is... The sword coming from his mouth. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And the centurion that killed him falls at his feet as dead and says, Surely this is the Son of God. Because this sword, this sword will kill. It will, as Hebrews said, divide asunder soul from spirit. And notice what the birds are feasting on. Flesh don't miss that this is what god is going to do with the word that is in his mouth the word of forgiveness and celebration and delight the word of the father over his children the word of the husband over his wife the word of the friend over his friend the word of god is going to cut you into and what he's going to do is cut away everything from you that is false everything from you that is a lie everything from you that is dying everything from you that is dark and what will be left is who you were always meant to be. He will cut you down the same way he cut that centurion down at the cross. Father, this man whose spear is in my side, forgive him. He doesn't know what he's doing because when God feasts on us, he destroys everything that can be destroyed and then he gives us instead his feast for us. John knows what he's doing. The blood is the wine. And the body is the bread. We see the end of everything and we see, we see blood and bodies. Jesus sees the end of everything and he sees wine and bread. We are headed toward the great supper of God. And the great supper of God is the married supper of the lamb. And the married supper of the lamb is the lamb who has reconciled everyone with himself. Last image, Revelation 21. I won't make it through this, so Bishop, you better be ready to to take over. Revelation 21. The sword is the word, the word is the word of the gospel, the word is the word of forgiveness and reconciliation and love. But what about the rod of iron? Revelation 21. The angel who talked to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 1,500 miles, which is a, a bad translation. The image here is that it's 12,000 stadia, meaning it, it dwarfs Rome. This city makes Rome seem like some small Oklahoma town. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city, and with its rod, uh, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. He also measured the wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which the angel was using. The wall is built of jasper. The city is pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city are adorned with every jewel. The first was Jasper, the second Sapphire, and he describes the city. What's striking, I don't have time, I mean, I really don't have time. What's striking is that this rod that gets mentioned over and over and over again in the Revelation turns out to be a measuring stick. And it does two things. Two things are measured. The city, which is perfectly symmetrical, which is meant to show... Not only that it dwarfs all other cities, Babylon, Rome, Jerusalem, but also that it's put together just right. It's it's exactly what a city should be. God not only redeems us, but redeems us for each other and then orders our life together in such a way that is exactly what it should be. But in probably my favorite scene in the book of Revelation, which I'm not going to read, John is told to measure. What he visions is the temple. Now, you've got to follow me here. This gets a little complicated. I mean, this is a crazy book, right? He's told to measure the temple. And then it's, he's told, do not measure the outer courts, for those belong to the nations. And when you read it, it seems as if what he's saying is, Forget about the nations. Don't even worry about measuring it. But when you come to the city, one of the things we're told about the city is that there is no temple there. Because the Lamb is the temple. And it turns out that the reason he didn't measure the outer courts is not because God has brushed aside the nations, but because you cannot measure the love of God For the nations, God can make a city that's four square, but there's a number that no man can number, meant to live in the city that can be measured. Because eye is not seen, an ear is not heard, it's never even entered into the heart of a human being what God has prepared for us. God is able to do exceeding abundantly. Above all that we can ask or think or even dare to imagine, here's the truth about whatever's coming, whatever the end of the world is, it's so much better than you can imagine. You couldn't even pray for it because whatever you would ask God for, it's infinitely better than that. So whatever it is you want to see, God, here's my prayer. I want everyone redeemed. I want every sin forgiven. I want every injustice made right. I want every brokenness healed, and whatever I just ask for is nothing compared to what God will do. I can see you're still doubting me, so here's my here's my last word. Verse twenty-two: I saw no temple in the city, for its temple. Is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God is its light and the lamp is the lamb. The nations will walk by its light. What? The nations you just saw in 19 he killed the nations. What we saw in 19 there were no battle scene what we were told in 19 is that he destroyed the nations. And the birds of the heavens feasted on the flesh of the nations. And now suddenly, the nations, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Do you understand that for 20 chapters... We've been talking about the kings of the earth as the enemies of Jesus. What's, what's, what are we told right at the very beginning? He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And every other reference in this book to the kings of the earth, they are making war with the lamb. And then he destroys them. And the next time we see them, they are bringing their glory into his city. We shouldn't be surprised, should we? Because this is the firstborn of the dead. This is the one that when you kill him, just kills death and comes bringing his glory with him. So the one who can be killed only in order to kill death can kill only in order to kill death. Yes, he destroys the nations. Yes, he destroys the kings of the earth. And that's what we mean by saying he forgives them. Because the last image we have is of a city perfectly arranged and an endless flow of those people who thought they were God's enemies streaming in to say, you're worth." You know what it's like to have a friend that you know well, you know their heart, and to have a mutual acquaintance who doesn't really understand your friend. They've made a judgment about him or her that you know is wrong. You know what that feeling is like, right? That's what all of us should feel all the time about our Jesus. About Jesus. People think they know him. They don't know him. They've only turned once. If you knew him, you would fall at his feet as dead. And he would immediately pull you up and say, Stop that. Don't be afraid. I'm I'm tired of reading and hearing talk about God as if his mercy is like human mercy. As if his forgiveness only reaches so far. As if his power only accomplishes so much. He's better than you can imagine. No matter how glorious you think he is, you haven't turned enough. He's more glorious. But his glory is not the glory of a king who wants to dominate you or dazzle you or awe you. It's the glory of a friend who just wants to embrace you. Of a father who just wants to bless you. You cannot imagine... What God has prepared for you. And I want you to hear me. We were talking last night, Bishop and I, were about experience he had similar to mine about being told. He was seeking baptism of the Spirit and afterwards someone told him, don't worry, when you get pure, when you get right, it'll come. You it can't be more wrong than that. Hear me this morning. It doesn't matter what you're doing or not doing. It doesn't matter whether you give a thought to God or not. It doesn't matter whether you love Him or not. He's coming for you. He's coming for you because His entire life is consumed with the desire to do good for you. God is nothing but the desire to bring God's own life alive in you. That's all God is. He wants nothing from you. He needs nothing from you. But He's got everything for you. So I'm going to say this, I, I, sorry, I've gone way too long, but i want to say this to Pastor Bill in closing, and then Bishop, please come and get me out of trouble. Tonight, you're, you're becoming a warrior priest yourself and leading this whole community into being warrior priests. And I want to leave you with this. You'll have a sword, and your sword is your word, and the word is the word that divides flesh from spirit. And the promise of Jesus to you, if if you read the seven churches of Revelation, so one of the things that's astonishing about about that is that everything that's said about Jesus in one, when John turns and sees him, all that he sees about him, the flaming eyes, the sword in his mouth, the, the burnished bronze feet, everything he sees then Jesus promises to give the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Everything that's his, he gives away. God keeps nothing. So he's going to give you his sword so that when you speak from this pulpit or across the table or in a hospital room, your word will cut without ever doing violence. Your word will cut flesh from spirit, lies from truth, the satanic from the healing. And he's going to give you a rod of iron. And it's a measuring rod for what cannot be measured. And make sure that your garments only ever have your blood on them. And when it's all said and done... Hopefully many years from now, when you are at the end of your life, when your ministry is done, they will say about you, Father Bill, his word cut but never harmed. He measured us, but only to show us the measureless love of God. And the blood that was on him was always only his blood. And if that's true, and I think it will be true. I hope I'm I'm around to see it. Not that I want to see you dead, but I want to be there to be. (laughs) What we'll say is that's Jesus. That's who he is. And that's who you're going to be. I'm done. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle Podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.